At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. Good morning. Happy spring to you. It is uh, great to see you here today. Now, earlier this week, uh, I read a news story that kind of captured my attention. I confess to you, it was the massive, ridiculous dollar amount that did it. $3.5 billion to be exact. $3.5 billion. That's the size of the financial error committed by the state of South Carolina's top financial executive. Exposed by a junior staffer, this $3.5 billion blunder stemmed from a mapping issue that the state had been doing over the course of a number of years. And what happened was this led the state to actually double counting and then distributing lots and lots of money to state colleges and universities. Now, as you might expect, with a $3.5 billion blunder, the state's comptroller uh, resigned. Clearly, he had created a financial mess. Or had he? What if the comptroller, instead of turning in his resignation, actually went to the people who were in charge and said, well, (laughs) you see that as a $3.5 billion blunder. You see that as an heir. Well, that is your truth. I have a completely different perspective on things. I I don't really see that as an error. And in my view, uh, what I did was spot on and it is completely valid. That is my truth. Seems a bit ridiculous, doesn't it? Especially when we're talking about such large dollar amounts. And if we're going to kind of lean into that guy's argument, I think we can all agree, yeah, that's ridiculous. That's, that's just silliness. And so through a series of checks and balances, the comptroller's financial error was exposed and it was made right and everything was corrected. Now here's where it comes to you and to me. Here's where it matters. When it comes to matters of truth... It shouldn't matter if we're talking about $3.5 billion or $3.50. Truth matters. Truth matters. And so today, what we're going to be doing as a church family is we're going to be turning to the word of truth, God's word. And we're going to do that in just a few moments after we pray. Let's pray together. Gracious God, you are our heavenly Father. God, it is a privilege to call you that, and we call you that because of the work of your Son. The work of Jesus on the cross gives us that opportunity to call you Father. 
and to fully experience what that means for us in this life, to recognize that you are good, that you are holy, that you are worthy of our attention, you are worthy of our praise, you're worthy of all of it. So God, whether we struggled to walk in here today because the week has been so very difficult, or if we are on the other side of that and we have seen your work in our lives in powerful and significant ways wherever you find us, we know that it is your desire to be our Father, to have a deep relationship with your people. And one of the ways you do that is by giving us the truth of your word, God. So give us eyes to see this truth today. We ask for ears to hear this truth and then humble hearts, God, to put this truth into practice in our lives in the week ahead. And we ask this humbly in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last Sunday, we launched a uh, new sermon series. It's called The Essentials, Why Truth Matters. And over the course of the next couple of months, we're going to be seeking biblical truth as it is expressed in a creed. And that creed is something that dates back to the second century. It goes way, way back. And it is a, a traditional statement of doctrine that what it seeks to do is boldly proclaim the essence of the gospel. It does so as it represents the Holy Trinity. And this is why for generation upon generation upon generation, believers have affirmed the truths that are represented in the Apostles' Creed. They've done so to strengthen the faith of the believers, to strengthen your faith and to strengthen my faith. That's why we have doctrinal statements like the Apostles' Creed. And so it is a statement that you and I are going to look at and see that over the course of these next few weeks, we're going to see that what it does is it summarizes what the Bible makes as truth claims. So when we're considering what it means to walk in truth and to know God's truth, the Apostles' Creed sort of summarizes it and puts it together in a way that you and I can affirm and we can gather around together. Now, as I mentioned last Sunday, we're going to be working our way through this historic creed line by line by line. And in doing so, what our goal is, is that we would align our hearts, align our beliefs with the saints who've gone before us. Generation upon generation of saints who've gone before us. It is our desire that we would affirm those matters of truth. So today, we're going to be considering the first full statement in the creed. What I want to ask you to do, last week we read the creed in its entirety. We're not going to do that today, but what we are going to do is affirm just one line. So I'd like you to, right where you are, to affirm the words of the creed right along with me. Here's what it says. For I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. You see, the immediate view of that statement helps us see that all things... Not just some few specific things, but all things depend upon God, our creator. Our entire existence, in fact, is owed to him. Owed to his common grace to people. 
Yet there's far more depth to that statement than just a few words that we just read. And that's what we're going to invest in today. We're going to unpack together uh, the words of Psalm 33 today. And you can be getting ready, going there in your Bibles. We're going to turn there in just a moment. Uh, It is an Old Testament book of poetry, Psalm 33. But as you're turning there, there's something that I want to acknowledge about the creedal statement that we just proclaimed together. And I want us to acknowledge that there is a familial statement within what we just said. It's a statement that connects with our family relationship. God the Father. You say, well, why do we call him Father? It's a fair question, right? Why do we call God our Father? Because he is not some distant, far-off deity. Instead, he is a God who desires a relationship with his people. He longs to be in communion with you and with me. He is not distant. He is not uncaring. He is connected in relationship. Now, I want us to consider a couple of verses from the Old Testament that point to this reality of God as our Father. Consider Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 6. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father? Is he not the one who created you? Is he not the one who made you and established you? Psalm 68, 5. He is the father of the fatherless. And he is the protector of widows, is God in his holy habitation. He is the father to the fatherless. That's just a quick snapshot of a couple verses in the Old Testament. And perhaps more significant than even that aspect is what we see expressed in the Apostle Paul's words when he's speaking of the father's relationship with the son. Here's what he says to the church in Ephesus. He said, blessed be the God and father of who? Of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I'd say, well, why does this matter? It matters because it shows us the heart of God and that he desires to have relationship with his people. It establishes the very foundation of the relationship within the Trinity, within what we call the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is relationship within that. I love the way author Ben Myers describes it. He says the Father, he's the source The Father is the origin, and he is the wellspring of divine life. That's our God. And this is why when God's people gather, God our Father gives us every reason imaginable to worship him, to worship the living God. So now, let's grab our Bibles and turn to the Old Testament book of Psalms. What we're going to be reading is the whole psalm. So it's going to be a little bit long. And then what we're going to do is we're going to unpack it as we go through our morning. And what you need to know is this is a psalm that, uh, that speaks boldly about our God. So let's read it together. 
Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in, righteous, in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap, and he puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples, but the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. For the Lord looks down from heaven and he sees the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. For our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Psalm 33. There is something so simple and yet so profound in what we just read. God, our Father, reveals his commitment to his people in power, in beauty, and he does so in his creative acts. It's right there. It's all over it. The act of creating, which is certainly detailed in most depth in the book of Genesis, that gives us a picture of the character of our God. And when we read this, what we find is we see more character. It speaks of his authority. It speaks of his creativity. It speaks of his love. But it also speaks of three other aspects of his character, things that cause you and me to worship. And the first is his power. Because his power is seen in making all things by his word. God's power is seen in making all things by his word. So when we read Psalm 33, what we see is a clear picture of the power of God, our Father. It's there. It's all over there. But this leads us to an important question, doesn't it? 
How are God's people to respond? I mean, we can read a text like that and go, wow, he's powerful, he's amazing, he's other. How do you and I respond to that kind of text? Well, thankfully, David gives us a little bit of a, of a game plan. He gives us some, some direction. Here's how God's people are to respond. I want you to think through this with me. We're going to highlight a number of them as we work through the text. First, he says we're going to respond with joy. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. We're going to praise him with joy. Next, we have thanks. We're to give thanks to the Lord with the liar. So there is joy and there is thanks. Then a little later in verse 2, it says we are to make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. So we're going to have joy. We're going to be thankful. We're going to make melody. We're going to then in verse 3, sing to him a new song. Then we are going to play skillfully on the strings. That is verse 4. Then in, is it, this section closes out by saying we're going to do so with loud shouts. So let's go over those. Joy, thanks, melody, singing, playing. Ultimately, shouting. All of those are active. All of those are passionate responses to God, our powerful Father. Did you catch that? They're all active, passionate things. They're not sort of this ho-hum, doesn't matter. So if they're passionate... And they're active. Do you know what they're not? They're not lethargic. And they're not bored. All of the actions listed by the psalmist called God's people to action because our God is powerful and he is worthy to be praised. That's our God. I had a pastor friend of mine who used to say this, and the more I have been in the church, the longer I have served in the context of the church, I think he's actually right. He said one of the biggest threats to the witness of the church, to the witness of God's people, is when we say that we believe in amazing grace. Love us some grace. We believe in amazing grace and then we sing and we respond to that grace as though it's not really all that amazing. White Lake family, let's be amazed at our God. Let's be amazed at the power of our God. Now let's look back at verses 5 through 9. The psalmist writes, He loves the righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and the breadth of the mouth of all the host. He gathers the waters of the sea, and he does so as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. So let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. 
by his words, what God commands happens. I want you to pause for just a moment. What God says, what God speaks actually occurs. Wrap your mind around that for just a moment. When he speaks it, it happens. It's powerful. Consider the words of the Apostle Paul to the Colossians. Here's what he writes. He says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Not some things, not a few things, all things. And so we worship God because he is almighty God. He is our powerful father. He is the maker of heaven and earth. And the second reason that we can worship our God is because his wisdom is seen in carrying out his eternal plans. In carrying out his eternal plans. Now the key word there, many of us won't like this, but the key word there is his. His Eternal plans. That means they're not your plans. That means they're not my plans. I'd like them to be, and I'm guessing you would too, but they are not. They are his plans. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. Whoa. The counsel of the Lord instead stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generation. Church, it's his counsel that guides. It is his plan that prevails. It is his counsel and it is his plan that stands forever. Why? Because he has ultimate wisdom. Because he has a wisdom that goes far beyond what you and I can even comprehend. This is the character of our God. This is the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Let's get practical for just a moment. This can be a struggle for us, can it? To trust that God's counsel, that God's plan is actually better than my plan. If you're anything like me, you often think, well, I, I have a wonderful plan for my life. I know what God should do in this whole scenario. I know what God should do with all aspects of my life. I know the way that everything should go, all of it, all the time. Anybody else like that? Yeah, the people who aren't raising their hands are dishonest. And yet if we stop and think about that long enough, what we'll find is that our hearts are selfish. Our minds are self-serving and our actions are typically self-centered. You see, the sort of counsel and plan that might be best for me might not be best for you or for the rest of God's people. Now here is the hard part. That's true of you too. fact is we are far better off to follow the counsel and the plan of a powerful, wise, and sovereign God. That's what's best for God's people. 
Now there is far more for us to learn, so let's continue on in our text. Let's look at verses 12 through 15. The psalmist says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. For the Lord looks down from heaven and he sees the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all of their deeds. For blessed are those who call upon the name of the Lord. For it's those whom the Lord has chosen. These are the people who receive the gift. You say, but wait a second, I'm a little unclear on that whole word there. He says heritage. What is the blessing of God's heritage? It's his watchful care. It is the watchful care of God upon his people. Now, some scholars even dub this section of the text God's eye. Because what it does is it provides this intentional watching, intentional looking and care over his people. And church, if we wrestle with that for just a moment and think about that, that is powerful. It is God's watchful care. So who receives that? Let's continue in the text. It says, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. For those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Now the first thing we must take away from verse 18 is that God's eye is set squarely upon those who fear him. I want to be very clear about this point. It's, ev- it's important that every single person here understands what I'm about to say. The fear the psalmist is speaking of is not the kind of fear that comes when we feel intimidated or when somebody powers up on us. It is not that kind of fear. We don't, we don't cower in this kind of fear. Instead, this is speaking of a reverent fear. The fear that you have when you respect someone so deeply. I want to give you a little exercise right here in the middle of our sermon. I want you to think for just a moment about the most godly, Christ-like person that you know. Take a moment. Think about the person who most resembles what you read in the scriptures of who Jesus is. Think about that person for just a moment. That's the individual that you have such a high degree of respect for. You respect the way they walk their faith. Each and every day, the high level of integrity of what they view as the scriptures and how they walk in light of that truth. You have somebody in mind? My guess is you are not physically afraid of that person. You don't cower in their presence. Instead, what you do is you have a reverent fear of them because they are so respectful of God in their life. 
They walk so closely with God that they bring on this measure of reverent fear. This is the kind of fear the psalmist is highlighting in our text today. And it is this who the people of God look at. And look at this holy, righteous God. And that's how we have this reverent fear of him. These are the ones that God chooses to deliver. Church, this shows us his love. It's a love that is seen in delivering those who have hope in him. You see, through the sacrificial blood of his son Jesus, who was spared for all who would believe, people of faith in Christ, these are the ones who will be delivered. These are the ones who will be delivered. Now, the beauty of the truth that we just read here is that God reveals his love to us in two very distinct ways. I want you to track with me here. In verse 19, what it says is that he may deliver their souls from death. That's a spiritual deliverance. Then the second half of that verse gives us a physical deliverance, and he will keep them alive in the midst of famine. So there is a physical and a spiritual. God cares for both. He cares for both our spiritual needs and our physical needs. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves his people and he wants to minister and care for both. Because both matter to him. And see, church, the way God cares for us is so significant, it's so profound. It's so intense that you and I should not overlook it. In fact, it's something that we should not only look at, but we should seek to wrestle with in our own minds. Here's what I mean by that. Whenever a pastor talks about God being the Father, there are many in the congregation who will say, oh yeah, that's easy for me. I had an amazing earthly father. He loved me well. He provided spiritual direction for me. He was the man. I have no problem viewing God the father uh, through kind of the lens of my earthly father. And yet there's others of us who would stand on the opposite side of that equation and say, you know what, my dad wasn't that. He was a whole lot of other things, but he wasn't that. What are we to do with that then? If you're on this side of the equation, what are you to do with the idea when the, when the creed says, God our Father? What should we do with that? When the scripture says that God is our Father and cares about us in both spiritual and physical ways, what are you and I to do with that? I think a church historian by the name of Justo Gonzalez gives us some really helpful insight. He says, instead of thinking of God through the view that we have of our earthly father, we should instead see God the Father as the goal, as the North Star for all who serve as dads. He said, fathers are called to be as loving as God is. I'm going to say that one more time. Fathers are called to be as loving as God is. Now, practically speaking, this means the goal for every father here today is based upon Psalm 33. What it shows us is that we should love our kids in both physical ways and spiritual ways. We care for their physical needs that they get taken care of as well as their spiritual needs and their spiritual development. 
Dads, how we doing? How are we doing? Most dads that I know can handle the phys- physical side of things. We have no problem going out and playing a sport with them and kind of guiding them through life in their physical direction. But it's on the spiritual side of things that we struggle to put the reality of our faith into practice. If what I just described to you stings a little. I want you to know as your pastor that your church cares about you and cares about your children. I'm going to be very direct here and to the point. We care about you and we care about your children. And we have many ways that we're trying to develop this and show you this in the midst of what we do as a church community. This is why we are trying to equip you with something that we call uh, talk about family discipleship. It's an opportunity for you to go and be equipped to do what? To care for the spiritual needs of your kids. We can do it, but only an hour a week. You're with your kids day after day. You say, well, I don't feel equipped. That's why we have men's groups. That's why we have life groups. Because we desire to pour into you and help you to be able to care for not only the physical needs, but the spiritual needs. Some of you were here today and you say, well, you know what, Pastor, those things are great. I need a little more intentional support. Well, we want to come alongside you too. In fact, that's why every Sunday at the end of the message, I will say to you, hey, we're going to have leaders up front here who would love to pray with you, love to process with you. That's what I'm talking about. We want to care for you in those real rubber meets the road kind of ways. If it's deeper than that, we can set up a one-on-one time with myself, Pastor Kevin, one of our elders. We would be glad to do that. We are here to help you love your children, guide them not only physically but also spiritually. So as we close out our look at God the Father, Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, it is important for us to see where all of this leads where all of it leads, and we're going to go back to Psalm 33 and look at those last couple of verses. Here's what the psalmist writes. He says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. So let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Church, all of this points to worship. It points to worship. It leads us to waiting on God to work in our lives. It leads us to depending upon God more faithfully, more consistently. And ultimately what it does is it asks you and me to truly trust in him. So do you trust the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? You see, through his power, through his wisdom, and through his love, God has given us every reason to believe 
that we can. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.